1: flushcarecom slash weight loss.
2: Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. Around about a year ago on this podcast, I was lucky enough to talk to Paul Offit. He is a vaccine researcher. He advises the US government on vaccines. And he was talking to me about the COVID vaccine on the day that it was announced that there was a workable COVID vaccine, a safe COVID vaccine by Moderna. It feels like we have had a lot of water under the bridge since then. We've now had hundreds of millions of people vaccinated around the world. It has been an absolute miracle. But during that conversation, Paul Offit mentioned Maurice Hillman to me. Maurice Hillman is responsible for nine of the big 14 vaccines in history. Nine of them. Absolutely astonishing. It said he saved more lives than any other human who has ever lived. Those vaccines include mumps, rubella, Japanese encephalitis, and hepatitis A. He is consigned so many of these diseases into our past. And we are so lucky to be living in a post-Maurice Hillman era. Paul Offit knew him, met him, was one of his biographers. And so I thought it'd be fascinating to learn more about this extraordinary man who discovered so many new virus strains, helped develop new vaccines and grew up in a very rugged setting in Montana. Grew up in straightened circumstances in Montana. His twin sister died just before he was born. His mother died two days later. And he always felt in some ways he'd be abandoned by his father after that, as you're about to hear. Unbelievable story about a man who we should all know far more about. If you want to discover more unbelievable history, the place to do that is at History Hit TV. We've got our own TV channel here at History Hit. It's like Netflix, but just for history. Historyhit.tv. Please go and check it out. If you sign up today, You can use it anywhere in the world. I'm not sure about North Korea, but anywhere else it works. Historyhit.tv. You get 30 days free if you sign up today. But in the meantime, it's a great pleasure for me to welcome Paul Offit back on the podcast. Enjoy. Paul, thank you very much for coming back on this podcast. My pleasure. Now, I have to have you back because last time you mentioned the legend Maurice Hillman, who you suggested may have saved more lives than anybody else in the history of the human race
3: tell me about him where was he born so he was born in custer county montana to a family that was interested in farming that's what they did and he had a twin sister who died within hours of his birth his mother died within days of his birth his father ultimately gave him away to his aunt and uncle because he was you know like the eighth or ninth child and That was enough so he grew up apart from his brothers and sisters and mother and father he had a hard scrabble life he almost died of diphtheria he almost died when a train ran him over when it was on a trestle and he had nowhere to go he's an amazing guy i mean who thinks that someone from that background would then grow up to be the principal either researcher or developer of nine of the 14 vaccines that we currently give to children that are estimated to save about eight million lives a year
2: How did he do that? What did it tell us about the U.S. at that time? Was it public education? Who created Maurice Hillman?
3: Certainly his work ethic, I think, was a product of his rough Montana upbringing. He went to Montana State University um, in Bozeman, where he graduated at the top of his class. He then went to the University of Chicago, where at the time was arguably the premier science center in the world for educating about what he was interested in. As his PhD thesis, he figured out that chlamydia wasn't a virus, it was a bacteria, and therefore could be treated with antibiotics. I mean, he was 25 years old. That was his thesis, you know, he was amazing. And then in Chicago, they wanted him to go into academia because that's what you did when you were as smart as he was. But he said no, he wanted to make things because that's what he was doing. He was used to selling eggs and chickens and, you know, making brooms and that's what he did. And he wanted to make things and that's why he was drawn to industry. So I think, I really do think his upbringing more than anything is what made him who he is.
2: The education he had obviously was extraordinary as well, I guess. And he was successful in making that transition to being somebody who did make things.
3: Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the bovine human reassort and vaccine Road Attack. That was a 26-year effort to make one vaccine. I mean, here's a guy that was a principal researcher or developer on nine vaccines. I mean, it's like trying to imagine another dimension, you know, like a fourth or fifth dimension when you sort of talk about Dr. Hilleman. And that's why sort of toward the end of his life, I mean, I'd known him for 20 years, but toward the end of his life, when he was diagnosed with disseminated cancer and was given roughly six months to live, which is actually exactly how long he did live, he was kind enough to let me sort of just interview him so I could get his stories down. I feared that, you know, this remarkable human being was, and all of the stories that he had would die with him. And so he was nice enough to meet with me at least once a week. We had about 70 hours worth of meetings. So he let me record him, which was fun for me, just as an educational experience For nothing else. It was like vaccinology, you know, 501. Was he a genius?
2: Was he like Copernicus? Or were the stars in alignment at that time for somebody in that position? The rest of science, the conditions were there for someone to make these breakthroughs.
3: He was a genius, not just in that he knew everything that was to be known about the subject he was interested in, but he had this remarkable sense of judgment. He was just right a lot. You know, when you do things like you make a measles vaccine or mumps vaccine or German measles vaccine and you take a live human virus and you, you try and weaken it, it's not like there was a formula for this or there was some recipe on how to do this. He just, trial and error, again and again and again. And he was just remarkably successful. It's just an amazing sense of judgment.
2: And what was he like to work for, with? Was he an ogre or was he a great guy as
3: well? I mean, he was rough. He expected people to work as hard as he did, which was pretty much all the time, and uh, he expected nothing less. On the other hand, he was amazingly loyal to people, and they were amazingly loyal to him. People loved working for him. The rules were clear. He, in many ways, was a modest man. He never really took credit. I mean, nobody knows his name. Nobody knows Bruce Silliman's name, even though, again, I would argue he has saved more lives than any other human in history. STDs
2: had a terrible impact on, well, everybody, but particularly soldiers, for example, and sex workers during and between the wars. Apart from the chlamydia, I mean, chlamydia is a, obviously a huge one, but what was his first breakthrough?
3: Right, so chlamydia, realizing that that was a um, bacteria and therefore treatable was a major breakthrough as a student. But his first product was working for ER Squibb and company. He was contracted really by the military to make a vaccine against Japanese encephalitis virus, right? We were sending people into the Far East. Japanese encephalitis virus was the most common cause of encephalitis, meaning inflammation of the brain, which could cause paralysis and coma and death. And so he was able to, really in a 30-day period, mass-produce Japanese encephalitis virus vaccine by growing the virus in mouse brains. He had all these sort of people who worked for him that would dissect the mice, and they would take out the mouse brain, and they would put it in a blender, a Wearing blender, you know, where they would blend all the mouse brains together, and then he would use that as a sort of material to grow his Japanese encephalitis virus. I'm not sure Fred Waring, when he made the Wearing blender, ever imagined it. It was going to be blending mouse brains, but that's what happened. And, you know, he saved a lot of lives for the soldiers that went in the Far East and fought there.
2: Once you've done that once, you're like, I can make vaccines now. Just like put everything else in the blender and with a few drops of whatever it is.
3: How different were all of his techniques for these different diseases? Very different. You have, for example, Japanese encephalitis virus is a killed viral vaccine. His measles and mumps and rubella vaccines were live, weakened form of the virus. The work he did on haemophilus influenzae B, which is a bacterial vaccine, was a conjugated vaccine where the polysaccharide or complex sugar on the outside of the bacteria was conjugated to a harmless protein. The hepatitis B vaccine was a product of recombinant DNA technology. It was a single protein vaccine. So very different. I mean, he mastered many different vaccine technologies in order to do what he did.
2: Did he face... Scepticism? Did he have to bust through some kind of glass ceilings? How was the reception of the scientific community and the wider community?
3: Oh, I think the scientific community was thrilled. But he was always behind the scenes. I think people didn't really ever put his name to the vaccines. If you look, the mumps vaccine was made from a virus that was isolated from a person. The person that was the virus was initially isolated from was his daughter. Gerald Lynn Hilliman, And so he isolated the virus. He ultimately weakened it in culture. And that four years after she was sick with mumps, that became a vaccine. And so if you look in the package insert, it says the Gerald Lynn strain. So Gerald Lynn was his daughter. Also, there's a rhinovirus, which is a common cold virus, serotype. That serotype 8 is called the MRH strain. That's him. He was Maurice R. Hilliman. I think those are the only places you can see even any sort of remote connection to his name per se.
2: Was he happy with that? You know, when you talk to him at the end of his life, he's like, yeah, I kind of wish I'd taken more credit for that.
3: No, never. His disappointment at the end of his life was he, he felt he could have done more. He just had this goal, this ridiculous goal of trying to prevent any viral or bacterial infection that could cause children to suffer or be hospitalized or die. That was his goal. I mean, it's just a little ridiculous as a goal. And so he didn't reach that goal because there were still viruses and bacteria that could cause children to suffer. And so he always felt he could have been doing more.
2: Are you telling me that Maurice Hilleman died feeling like a failure? Because of what the hope of the rest
3: of us got? I think failure is a strong word. I think he died feeling he could have always done more. That's just who he was. It was never enough. At one point in my interviews with him, he had said, I wanted my father to see me. Because he was raised by his aunt and uncle, but not far away from where his father was. It was only a few hundred yards down the road. So he's watching his father raise his brothers and sisters. He's being raised by his aunt and uncle. And at one point he said he wanted his father to see him. And I just feel like his early uh, childhood maybe had created a hole so deep that no matter how many spades of dirt you threw in, no matter how many vaccines you invented, you were never going to fill up that hole.
2: Maybe that was it. But what do I know? I think that's a good working theory. We're all talking about vaccines at the moment. Are the current breakthroughs on the shoulders of the work that he did? Or or is this new technology now that we're able to uh, harness?
3: The mRNA technologies and the vectored viral vaccine technologies of Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are novel technologies. He had no experience with that. I mean, I certainly think that his work in defining sort of what are the immunological properties that you look for to know whether something is successful, the standards that he set regarding vaccine safety and how to do studies to see whether vaccines are safe and effective, that's certainly those researchers, they do stand on the shoulders of giants. He is one of those giants. But he, he didn't have a direct connection to those particular technologies. you
2: listen listening to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about Maurice Hillam, invented dozens of vaccines, saved more lives than anyone else in history. More coming up.
0: Hi, I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
2: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Did you ever question science's ability? to defeat these enemies. I mean, now today there's a feeling that actually, you know, we tried to overcome this and we thought penicillin was a wonder drug, but it turns out our enemies are pretty smart and they can adapt. And are we going to be locked in this battle forever? It seemed like he had that kind of almost 19th century view, this black and white view that good can achieve over these evil entities.
3: That's right. And I think that towards the end of his life, when he saw the impact of the anti-vaccine movement, he had seen the virus as the enemy, the bacteria as the enemy to be defeated. And then suddenly, viruses and bacteria had friends he would have never predicted, anti-vaccine activists, or said another way, pro-disease activists. And it really upset him. I remember one specific winter day in Philadelphia, we were in his office. I said to him, you know, do you think, because he had created the measles vaccine. I mean, the measles vaccine, at least in the United States, eliminated measles by the year 2000. But, you know, with Andrew Wakefield's paper and then the sort of parents who were choosing not to get measles-containing vaccines, you started to see measles come back in the United States, certainly by the time he had passed away, which was in 2005, and children were again suffering, children were again being hospitalized. And I said to him, do you think we can educate enough so that we don't have to suffer these diseases? Or do you think, again, children are gonna have to suffer or be hospitalized or worse, um, in order to gain the attention for how important these vaccines are. And he looked out the window for a long period of time before he turned around and answered the question. He said, no, I think, again, children are going to have to suffer. And that, to him, was the biggest defeat, I think, the notion that people could reject the work that he'd done based on, you know, misinformation or misconceptions.
2: When he was training as a scientist, and, and when you were training, did you think part of your job as a scientist was going to be Getting out there, swashbuckling, taking on people in the marketplace of ideas. Or do you just think, look, my job is to take the virus out and leave the politics and the PR to other people. Like, is that difficult for you guys?
3: Yes. God, yes. I mean, I think your training as a scientist is to formulate hypotheses, establish burdens of proof. And then when you write up a scientific paper, you are considered to be a good scientist If you never go beyond the data that are in front of you, if your discussion section is full of caveats, you know, I'm allowed to say this but not this based on my data. I mean, you're trying to do everything you can to reduce uncertainty by having relatively lengthy and complete explanations. That doesn't exactly fly on national television programs where you have at most a few sentences, three sentences to answer a question, a complex scientific question, which you're now reducing to a soundbite, which not only feels intellectually dishonest, I think at some level it is intellectually dishonest. Is honest, Your training is the opposite of training for being in the media or trying to confront this because, you know, you're not a politician. And so the minute that you take that on, then you are a politician. Suddenly you have an X on your back and suddenly you're being attacked personally. That's not anything that you ever imagined you were going to sign up for. Did he miss the worst of that,
2: do you think? Did he witness that towards the end of his life?
3: Yes. No, he was definitely a target. The anti-vaccine people realized who he was and what he'd done. And they targeted him. I mean, he largely saw it as silly. He certainly didn't like those people much. That's a nice way of saying it. He tolerated fools poorly, And that's what he saw them as, willfully, wantonly ignorant.
2: We talked a year ago on the day that the US gave emergency clearance for the use of the first vaccines against COVID. A year in, are you surprised by the vaccine resistance? Are you about where we expected? What's your impression a year on?
3: I'm shocked. Here you have a pandemic that has brought us to our knees, created massive joblessness, massive homelessness, food insecurity. I mean, an increase in domestic abuse, an increase in child abuse. It's a more violent society because people are so angry about what's going on. And there's a ticket out. There's a ticket out of all this, which is the vaccine. And yet in the United States, only about a little more than half The United States population has received this vaccine, a low 60% for adults who are eligible for the vaccine or anybody over 12 who's eligible for the vaccine. But really, that many people are saying no thanks? We have like 60 to 80 million Americans who are saying, nah, this vaccine isn't for me. I'm shocked. I am really shocked that people are that willfully ignorant and incredibly selfish. What is the answer? Mandates in this country mandates. I think we've gotten to the point where you have a group of people, a large group of people who are saying, don't want the vaccine. We're gonna continue to be fertile ground for this virus to spread, mutate, create variants that are more and more resistant to vaccine-induced immunity, continue to do harm. We don't give a damn about our fellow citizens. We don't give a damn about our children because we're not gonna be vaccinated even if we have children. And what are you gonna do about it? You gonna do anything about that? We can do nothing where we can take a much harder line on mandates. That's where we are now. Until we get another 60 or 70 million people vaccinated, until we get to about 90% population immunity, either from vaccination or natural infection or both, we're gonna to continue to have this pandemic. Yesterday in the United States, we had, it was like 158,000 cases and 1,700 deaths that's worse than last year. I mean, last year when we had a fully susceptible population and no vaccine, we're worse this year because of the Delta variant and because we have a critical percentage of the population that's not vaccinated.
2: What's the historical context for mandating vaccines? It's not like the kind of wild out there socialist idea that some people
3: are making it out, right? This is not new. Not at all. It went to the Supreme Court in the early 1900s in the famous Jacobson v. Massachusetts case. So Henning Jacobson was a Lutheran minister who lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts during a smallpox outbreak. The Cambridge Board of Public Health said that he had to either get a vaccine or pay a fine. He refused both. It worked its way up to the United States Supreme Court, where that ruling was that a Board of Health can mandate vaccines for its citizens. And That went again to the Supreme Court 17 years later, was reaffirmed. It is not your constitutional right to choose not to vaccinate yourself if it is mandated.
2: On the subject, perhaps on the Bellin News, you were fascinated. You were still reading up about the vaccine last time we talked. How impressed have you been with the science, with the various vaccines that have been produced?
3: I'm a child of the 50s, so I was, you know, there during the development of the polio vaccine. I think these mRNA vaccines are the greatest scientific or medical breakthrough in my lifetime. I mean, you have a virus that was just isolated and sequenced in January of 2020. The sequence was published in Lancet in January, 2020, 11 months later, only 11 months later, using a completely novel technology, you had done two large clinical trials showing the vaccine was remarkably effective. I mean, in the 95% range of effective and Remarkably safe. You know, we were told, I'm on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. We were told if you had 50% efficacy, we could move ahead with that vaccine and we would be really happy with 70% efficacy. It was 95% effective. Now that erodes to some extent, but that's how good this was. I'm always amazed that it was the previous administration. It was the Trump administration that put $24 billion into this effort to create, I think, one of the most Remarkable scientific achievements in my lifetime. And I'm surprised that Donald Trump didn't take more credit for that. And the reason is, and I could be wrong on this, I think deep down inside, he is a remarkably, you know, quiet and unassuming man who just doesn't like to put his name on
2: things. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think history shows that's right. Last question. What do these vaccines mean? What's this new technology mean for the future, for diseases? Do we need a Maurice Hilleman next time, or are we going to be able to take these things on without genius on our side?
3: No, this was Hilleman-like in a sense. I mean, what Maurice Hilleman did was he would just sort of grab his company by the scruff of its neck and bring them forward at warp speed. I mean, he did that. He was the single defining leader. And that's really what happened in the last administration. I mean, you had Operation Worsby, which was a $24 billion effort that took the risk out of it pharmaceutical companies. They were willing to mass produce the vaccine at risk, not knowing whether it worked or it's safe. They were willing to lose billions of dollars and throw hundreds of millions of doses away. That's really the Trump administration did that. I mean, you have to give them credit for that. It is, I know I made a joke about this, but it is really a remarkable achievement. And then the Biden administration figured out how to mass produce it, mass distribute it, mass administer it, make sure that everybody had access. And now we've hit a wall because there are just a certain percentage, 25, 30% of the population says not interested.
2: And what's it mean for the future? What other enemies can we slay with this kind of technology? Are you feeling excited about the science, if not the politics?
3: Yes. No, I I think that work's all being done. Will this help us leap into a human immunodeficiency virus vaccine or a better tuberculosis vaccine or a malaria vaccine or a universal flu vaccine? Certainly all that work is being done. I don't know whether any of that will be successful. The success of this may be unique to this particular uh, virus. But one thing that did happen is we vaccinated a lot of pregnant women. And so now you have a real uh, platform of safety for this technology in pregnant women which is not true with a lot of vaccine technologies so there are vaccines which pregnant women and their soon to be born babies will benefit like a group b strep vaccine or a meningococcal vaccine or a respiratory syncytial virus vaccine so i think that's probably the most tangible single thing that clearly will be of value
2: well it's exciting stuff thank you so much for coming back on the podcast now you're a busy man thank you for coming on
3: my pleasure thank you very much good luck I feel we
2: have the history of of ours our school history our songs this part of the history of our country all were gone and finished thank you for making it the of this episode of dan snow's history i really appreciate listening to this podcast i love doing these podcasts it's a highlight of my career it's the best thing i've ever done and your support your listening is obviously crucial for that project if you did feel like doing me a favor if you go to wherever you get your podcast and give it a review give it a rating obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic and feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50